Hey everyone, welcome to the special Horns Up edition of the Dan and Joe Sports Show. As always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe. Well, Joe, I called Texas to be Alabama last week. I don't know if I actually believe that. I think it was uh, in my mind. I certainly thought it was a possibility, but I didn't actually believe my eyes until I saw it. And not only was it the fact that they won, it was the way they won. Um, there's been very few times throughout the Nick Saban era when you've seen his team, frankly, get dominated for the most part. And at home, even more rare. I mean, I don't know that he's even lost by 10 points plus in Brian Denny since he's been their coach since maybe the first year that he was there in 2007. Um, it was uh, it was something. And it was on both sides of the ball. It was offensive line, defensive line, the receivers just completely working Saban's cornerbacks, which that's what he coaches. The secondary looks completely outmanned against uh, Xavier Worthy and A.D. Mitchell and that slew of Texas wide receivers. And Quinn Ewer showed why there's a reason that Arch Manning is sitting on the bench right now. Yeah, no doubt, Dan, uh, for all the reasons you mentioned. You know, that was a very impressive win for Texas. The biggest win for that program in 14 years, quite frankly. And I think that when you think about how Nick Saban has uh, performed um, at such a high level throughout his tenure, you're right. Like, I can't think of a more uh, convincing home defeat that he's had to deal with. And I think that with Nick Saban, you usually don't see his team lose, you know, where a team just kind of takes it to them. Like usually their losses, they're always kind of fighting until the very end or maybe even, you know, have a last second comeback to still make it interesting. Mm-hmm. And this was one where, you know, they, they just kind of were dominated. And Joe, even in the in the Joe Burrow year where LSU came into to Alabama and beat them, uh, LSU was up multiple times, two possessions at the very end of that game, but Alabama kept coming back and scoring. And I think, you know, Alabama even had a chance to do an onside kick at the end and get the ball back and maybe still win that game. And in this game, it wasn't anything like that. I mean, Alabama did have a lead in the fourth quarter at one brief point moment. Uh, but then I think when you were through a touchdown pass, like two plays later, and Texas never, never gave up from there. And the thing, too, is at the end of the first half, Texas had so many opportunities in the red zone to not capitalize, which usually you think of, okay, well, you got to take advantage of every opportunity that Alabama gives you. Texas didn't, so it's not going to work out for them. And seeing it have a game where, you have a team that does that, that has all these red zone opportunities, doesn't score a touchdown, they get down, and then they impose their will in the fourth quarter. I mean, they did what Alabama usually does to other teams. Right. It was a total um, script um, reversal. You flip the script, and I think that made it fascinating. And I think, you know, when you digest the game, you're interested to see where both teams come from here, you know, historically, or go from here. Historically, uh, Nick Saban, is able to right the ship in these kind of situations. You know, this year maybe feels a little bit different. I don't know. Um, I still think the West is kind of wide open to a degree. And then with Texas, you know, uh, Texas looks as good as anybody. Do I trust Texas, though, throughout a long season with 10 games to go? I, I don't know yet, but I, I do feel pretty good about it right now. Well, one thing that impressed me with Texas was their lines of scrimmage play. I mean, they were able to sack Jalen Milrow, who's extremely elusive, five times. 
and Quinn Ewers didn't get sacked at all. And that's almost unfathomable to me going against an Alabama defensive line. And, you know, I think it's a combination of Texas having an excellent offensive line and maybe this Alabama defensive line not being quite as good as what everybody put out there and really showing the the absence of Will Anderson. Because I think Dallas Turner is a good pass rusher. Uh, Tim Smith is someone that we've been hearing for four years is supposed to be an excellent pass rusher, and he showed some, you know, some ability. But they don't have the kind of scary pass rush that we're used to with Nick Saban defenses. And I think there's going to be a lot of quarterbacks that have a decent amount of time to throw it against them this year. Yeah, it's kind of that um, issue, I think, throughout the roster. You've got a lot of talent. You've got depth, but you don't have those household name headliner players, you know, that you're going to write home about. Like, you know, every year they tend to have that noteworthy guy on both sides of the ball. But even like the running back position, I don't feel like you have that household name that you normally have. Yeah, I mean, the running back running this year is depleted. It's got guys that are that are talented. I mean, Jason McClellan's a very talented running back, but I don't know that Alabama has a top four running back room in the SEC this year. Exactly, exactly. So you're you're kind of missing that star power across the whole roster. Like, really good players, but you don't have the great ones, to me. And, and let's go to the wide receivers. I mean, you know, they had that incredible run of every year, basically, ever since Amari Cooper got there, or ever since Julio got there, really, been going from Julio to Amari Cooper to Calvin Ridley to Jalen Waddell, Devontae Smith, just like down the line, excellent wide receivers. And ever since, it seems like Mechie and Jamison Williams got hurt before that Georgia game. They haven't had any any receivers that are really worth writing home about. Um, you know, I think the, their best player in that game was uh, uh, was like like Nibby Black, Nib Black, Nib Black. Their tight end looks like someone that's talented, but he wasn't very consistent. And they don't send. They don't think they have a go-to wide receiver right now, and it doesn't appear that they have a guy that's like a first-round draft pick a wide receiver at all. No, no, and I feel like the way it's set up, it's kind of like Milro has to feel like he has to do too much, and I'm not sure he's the type of quarterback, especially at this stage of his tenure, that really is expected or needs to be expected to do that much. Yeah, and and you know uh, something else that that he had too is he didn't have a lot of time to throw it. I mean, he was definitely getting a lot of pressure. The offensive line wasn't holding up, and that was something that if you listen to people like Cole Kubelik before the season, everybody was talking about, oh, man, Alabama's got this incredible offensive line that's that's going to make it, you know, that's going to make them really tough to beat is they're going to have their best unit as their offensive line. And that just didn't show up in this game. And I think, you know, part of something that he said that explains that is you don't get as many practices as you did before. So, maybe in the middle of the season, Alabama's offensive line is going to look the way it should have in the beginning of the season. And that may be true, but I definitely think right now their offensive line appears to be somewhat of a liability. Yeah, it's definitely a big question mark the rest of the way. Um, And on the other side, I mean, you're used to seeing wide receivers like what Texas had being what Alabama had. I mean, it looks like they have their very own trio that I'm not going to say that you're in the Devontae Smith uh, Jalen Waddle, you know, kind of category of, of having that much talent on a team. But, you know, these guys, Xavier Worthy and A.D. Mitchell, are excellent. And they may be the next rung underneath Ohio State with Marvin Harrison and Ubique in terms of, like, the talent at, at the wide receiver position. 
Yeah, I think so. I think they're the type of guys that as the season plays out, you know, the way this can potentially go for Texas, you feel like they may be, you know, a trio that everybody kind of knows who they are, like all season. Absolutely. I mean, and what what really blew my mind was I thought Ewers did play good, but a lot of those plays, including that touchdown to, to A.D. Mitchell, they were just so wide open. And here, Ewers didn't even throw it on the money. They actually had to come back for the ball, and they had time to do that, which – you're used to being that if you're going to beat a Saban defense on a deep ball, it better be a perfectly placed deep ball, not one where someone is so wide open they can actually come back and get it. Yes, yes. And, and also another, I think, impressive thing for me is that I know you had some turnovers for Milro, but usually with Alabama you have, like, when they lose, you know, that degree of, like, you know, the fluky play or the kind of the unexpected play that goes, you know, one team's way. I feel like there wasn't as much of that in this victory for Texas either. No, I mean, Texas had the what? They had the one pick six against Milrow, and I think he threw two interceptions total. But he also threw, what, two deep, long, deep touchdown passes that kind of, you know, made up for that a little bit. Um, but there was just, you know, just a lot of, lot of mental errors too. I mean, I think that's something we've seen the last couple of years with Saban's teams that we never saw before, which, you know, you always talk about preaching on the little things with the penalties. I mean, yet again, uh, I think they ended up having about 90 yards and penalties, and they had two different times where they had touchdowns that were taken off the board due to penalties. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder, you know, he's always been able to uh, avoid this being an issue, but at some point, like the, the the coordinator turnover every single year on both sides of the ball, like, you know, this has been more of an issue ever since Kirby Smart left. You have basically new coordinators, it seems like, on both sides of the ball too frequently. I wonder if that kind of impacts the precision. Absolutely. And, you know, all last year, everybody in Alabama was like, oh, we want to fire both the coordinators. Let's get rid of Bill O'Brien. Golding, our defense has been so terrible with Pete Golding. Well, let me tell you this, Joe. Uh, Pete Golding had an amazing defensive performance with his team last weekend, and they looked a lot better than that Alabama defense. And I don't think that what happened with Texas – the way they put up those points actually would have happened against a Pete Golding defense. Probably not. I think that that's a good point. Um, and, you know, something, too, like I like Kevin Steele. He was Auburn's defense coordinator for a very long time, and I thought that some of the best defenses they, they had at Auburn was when Kevin Steele was there. But his corners, he, he preaches a very aggressive corner play. They commit a lot of pass interferences. And if they start getting called for the pass interferences, they start getting beat. And we saw that in that, that Texas game. Alabama got called for having some obvious pass interferences because that's what Kevin Steele teaches you to do. And then pretty much right after that, they got beat on deep balls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that was a good indication or strong indication you know, that they were going to have some issues there. And, yeah, that's something they're going to have to correct. And that, and that could be a deficiency all season. And something, too, Joe, just the way that Texas was able to close the game out by picking up, what, a third and four by running the ball right up the middle. I mean, that was a very subtle power move right there on Sark's part to say, not only is my team flashier than yours and better able to throw the ball, I'm beating you right up front. And that's usually not something that an opponent does to Alabama where they're able to pick up and convert that third down in that situation. Normally they're going to be stuffed or even lose yardage. You know, Alabama kind of flexes their muscles and then, you know, having a chance to win it at the end. Absolutely. And, of course, the narrative on any show you listen to right now is, 
is the dynasty finally slipping away? Is, is Saban finally going to retire at the end of the year and all this kind of stuff? And it, Joe, I, I mean, I think obviously they've taken a little bit of a you know downslide the last couple of years with the rise of Georgia. But I think the good news is, if you're an Alabama fan, is this appears to be the weakest SEC that I've seen in a long time. Maybe if we were looking at a couple of years ago when you had A&M in Texas, A&M, LSU, Auburn, like all kind of at that spot where they were all playing really good. Uh, you know, Ole Miss and the Hugh Freeze era right there, all these teams that are just excellent teams in the SEC West, then you playing like this would be highly concerning. Like maybe you're a four-loss team somewhere in that realm. But I think the good thing for Alabama is, while I do think they're not as good as they have been, the rest of the league is a lot lot worse than it has been. So I don't know that you're going to see a huge drop-off this year. Now, maybe if people keep getting better in the interim, next season could be a, a scary one for them if they don't improve. But I don't think you're going to see this bottom fall out that some people are trying to predict right now. Oh, yeah. I, I would be stunned if we saw that. I, I think I could easily see this team – if you told me this team went ten and two, like I definitely believe that's a great possibility. If you told me they went eleven and one, I, I'm not shocked. I mean, I've seen it too much under Nick Saban. Um, I think that you know they've got so much to play for because, like you said, the SEC, the SEC West specifically, incredibly wide open, and so that they can easily kind of get things turned around and look better as the season progresses. Um, and I think that. The question mark with Saban right now, you know, we've seen this with Clemson too, is while they've recruited well at the high school level, it's just maybe not having those high-impact guys from the transfer portal compared to other schools. And we look at Quinn Ewers, you know, an impactful quarterback out of the transfer portal. And so that's something that I wonder might be something that's preventing Alabama from maybe looking quite as dominant. Right. I mean, you know, Notre Dame goes out and gets Sam Hartman which is is killer right now. You went and got Tyler Bugner, and he's not even starting for you. And if you watched Notre Dame last year, Tyler Bugner wouldn't have been very high on my list of quarterbacks I'd want to get out of the transfer portal. Right, right. I mean, he kind of be up there with what we're going to – I'll talk about in a few minutes with uh, with Georgia Tech and Nebraska. Right, and with Auburn too, to be frank. Um, But, you know, overall, I think that it was a very impressive win for Texas. Uh. You and I have said a lot of things about Sarkeesian. Uh, he's definitely improving himself greatly in my mind. He co- he out absolutely outcoached Saban on his t- in that game and showed that he outclassed him too in terms of the talent that he has. Um, but yeah, it's just going to be can they keep it up for an entire season? Because we've seen brief moments in this you know this Texas doldrums they've had since two thousand nine, where they'll have an impressive win. They'll go and beat. Notre Dame the first game of the year. They'll beat Georgia in the bowl game. They almost beat Alabama last year, but then they'll go out and they'll have an inexplicable loss. They'll go lose to Kansas, to Iowa State, to teams they have no business losing to. And I'm kind of with you, Joe, until I'm sitting there and I see them in the Big 12 championship game and they've got one loss or no losses, I don't believe that Texas is actually back. Right, you have to have that natural skepticism. And I can't remember if they play UCF this year, but something I can see something weird happening, you know, matching up against a quarterback like Plumley. Yeah, which hopefully he's okay. I know he got hurt in the in the game last week after he was having just an excellent week. So that would be that would be nice. And you know, if there's one thing that, that Gus Malzahn likes to do, it's to really ruin people's seasons and, and beat you surprisingly. 
I mean, he, he would like nothing better than that, especially even though he's no longer the Auburn coach. You know, after Alabama lost to him, he'd like kind of be able to to be knock Texas off. Oh, he would he would absolutely love that. Um, Joe, speaking of, of Texas's resurgence, right? There's always been this this whole narrative out there that Texas is always the giant in the state of Texas, even though there's all these other programs that are really good, Texas A&M, Baylor, Texas Tech, Houston, that have all this money that when Texas is on the map, none of the other ones can really have a chance to, to be at that level. And I always thought that was kind of ridiculous because Texas A&M has so much money. You see what Baylor's done lately. You know what SMU did back in the 80s. But seems like all these other programs right now that Texas is starting to look good is actually kind of fulfilling that. Uh, most notably, you know, Baylor losing to, uh, you know, Baylor losing back-to-back games. I think they lost to what? That would have, they, they, was Texas Tech that lost to Wyoming, but Baylor lost in the first week, and then, of course, they lost to Utah. Yeah, that's right. Baylor lost to Utah this week, but I think they lost a the game the first week too, right? I think so. I think they're 0-2. They're two right now. And then, uh, you know, Houston goes out and loses to Rice and JT Daniels uh, with his AARP card throwing touchdowns everywhere. And suddenly everyone else in Texas, and most notably Texas A&M, is taking steps back. And Texas A&M last week, I called it. I liked what Miami was doing. I thought Mario Cristobal was a perfect fit down there. Uh, he's an incredible recruiter. I don't think he's a great in-game coach, but if he gets the right guys that for his offense and his defense that are really solid in-game coaches, he's one of the best recruiters out there. And you get him back in his home in Miami where he can go and get five stars five minutes from the, the, from the campus, I knew it was going to happen for him. This was his second year. He's got a really good AD in Dan Radakovich. And I just kind of saw that coming. And – what really impressed me was Texas A&M has this defense where I think they've got like three five-star defensive linemen. Um, you know, they, they had that number one recruiting class two years ago. Now these guys, the ones that stayed are no longer freshmen, they're sophomores. And as good as they look getting off the bus, uh, Miami played excellent offense and a lot of big time mistakes and poor tackling by Texas A&M. And they were just getting slaughtered by uh, Tyler Van Dyke, a.k.a. Tyler Van Dyme, my new favorite nickname. Yeah, that's a good way uh, to uh, summarize it, Dan. You know, because the most difficult thing for me with uh, Texas A&M, and I think for a lot of people, is you talk about them looking good getting off the bus. You know, they've got all, you know, the the great players, the strong, you know, recruits that you think are going to go well. It's almost like, you know, as a kid, having maybe like uh, a toy that you've gotten from the store where it looks just out of the box, like it's just great. And then all of a sudden you try to plug it in or play with it and it just doesn't work. And, and for some reason, it's like that with AM. It's like everything looks great. You think they should be good, but this cohesion of talent, for whatever reason, just never comes together at the right time. And, and what's shocking to me about it is I, I really thought the Bobby Petrino hire reeked of desperation and it wasn't really going to work. But you can't be mad at Bobby Petrino when, what, in the first two weeks he's been their OC, they put up like 85 points. And they, they, they scored 33 points against Miami. And with what this Texas A&M defense is supposed to be in terms of the star accumulation they have, you would think 33 points would be enough to win. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, the offense, you know, not the concern. You know, it's just the defense allowing so many points. And I think just kind of building off the, what the narrative's been the last few years where you feel like you're just on the cusp of lucky to be eight and four again. Uh, they look like a team right now that, you know, not, they don't look like that five and seven team from last year, but they certainly look like a team that, yeah, could have seven wins. Mm-hmm. I can see it. Um, meanwhile, you know, the the power the power the power shifted to the ACC. You know, Florida State got their huge win over over LSU. Miami got a big win over over Texas A and M at home. And suddenly, with Clemson falling by the wayside, it looks like the dream of the ACC, which is to have a Florida State Miami uh, ACC championship game, and finally a meaningful. Florida State Miami rivalry game during the season, which when they're both good, that's one of the best rivalries in college football, and frankly, one of my favorite ones to watch. Yeah, I mean that, that'd be a fun game if they end up matching up. And so, yeah, I mean, I think um, having Cristobal at Miami, and then you know what Florida State's doing. I'm um, under Norvell. I think that's added a lot to the conference. But one other footnote I thought of when you mentioned Clemson that that was a weird game. How they looked like in the first half, they were only up 21 to 17. And I don't know if I've ever seen a team just pour it on against a, an inferior opponent like that and all of a sudden, uh, you know, flip that script and win by, like, 50 points. Yeah, there's a lot of anger in Clemson. I mean, you know, they're not used to being the laughingstock of college football and getting beat up by Duke. And then you add in that really terrible first half. And, you know, Dabo is, is right. He's not one that's up for for running the score up. You know, Kirby Smart does it. Um, Saban used to do it more than he does now. Um, and Jim Harbaugh certainly likes to do it, but that is not a Nick Saban thing. I mean, that is not a um, that's not a Dabo that thing. Yeah, Dabo's not big on running up the score, and on that one, I think he really needed to get that confidence in his players after just how terrible they looked on offense that first week, and and how much flack uh, him and Garrett Riley have gotten. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like reminding themselves that they're capable of being able to to do this. I'm like, 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 oh, wow, we got five-star players, too. I almost forgot about this. <laughs> exactly. This Kate Club, that guy, he's supposed to be like, he was the number one quarterback in America coming out of high school. Uh, Shipley, oh, that's that's a good running back. So, yeah, they needed to get right game, and it took them until the second half to really do it. Um, Joe, I was talking about, you know, how great everything has looked in, in the ACC, and, I mean, it definitely seems to be the conference right now, but – if they're 1A, 1B is the Pac-12 who has eight teams in the top 25. I think maybe at the very top, I like the ACC better uh, than the Pac-12, but throughout, they're definitely the deepest league. And until um, until late night, uh, Mississippi State first beating Arizona in overtime and then real late night, uh, Auburn escaping with a, a victory they frankly didn't deserve against Cal, the Pac-12 was undefeated. And, you know, yet again, they, they had some good wins. Uh, Colorado, of course, looked incredible against Nebraska, uh, this time doing it on both sides of the ball, offensively and defensively, and showing a lot of grit because they, they, didn't, they didn't do very good in the first half, especially on offense, and they really lit into Nebraska in the second half. And then Oregon going down and playing in a weird game in Lubbock where uh, I'm sure if you bet on Texas Tech, you were beside yourself this week because you made the right call. I mean – Texas Tech was pretty close to winning. You surely had the cover, and then all of a sudden you get this goofy 
let's say it's almost like an interception, but it ended up being a fumble return for a touchdown. And suddenly Oregon and those who bet on them, like me, cover on half a point. And so, um, you know, but that's still an impressive win for Oregon and Utah going to Baylor, which is also a difficult place to play where usually, you know, you have to pull out a last second victory if you're going to get a win. And so, you know, definitely the Pac-12 has really been flexing a lot. And even in games where their teams were a lot better, they made weird road trips and were able to get the Ws. Mm-hmm. Right, precisely. I mean, this conference, for so many reasons, immensely impressive. You know, to me, it's a little bit like Texas, you know, to the degree that I've got to see it play out through an entire season, you know, to believe it. But just an uber um, fascinating, um, you know, last hurrah for this conference. You know, love watching all the quarterbacks. And, you know, you've got, you know, not only the teams everybody's talking about, like Colorado's and the USC's of the world, but Oregon's. But I feel like, you know, Washington is just really, really good with uh, Michael Penix Jr. And uh, you've got, got a slew of, uh, you know, re- really strong teams in this conference. Including, Joe, the two real Pac-12 members, the Pac-2, Washington State and Oregon State. And Oregon State, of course, went out and killed San Jose State. Uh, the DJ is looking like an excellent quarterback. And Washington State, I thought, maybe had the most impressive win for the Pac-12 because everybody's been trying to hype Wisconsin now that Luke Fickle's back there. And I heard all kinds of people predicting, well, Washington's going to win the the Big Ten, whatever, that side of the Big Ten they're on, the one that doesn't have any of the good teams. The, the non-Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State side of it. Everyone's mm-hmm. picking Wisconsin to win. And I, I said early season, like, everybody needs to pump the brakes on Luke Fickle. I think he's an excellent coach, but I thought there was a very significant lack of talent at Wisconsin. And I picked Washington State to win this game last week. And Washington State went out at home at the Palouse and beat beat Wisconsin pretty handily. And I, and I think that was an important win because Wisconsin is part of the league that has destroyed your league. And you're trying to maintain your Power 5 status. I mean, right now, essentially, Washington State and Oregon State are like those teams that are, that are playing for relegation in European Premier League. They're the ones that have these games that they have to win somehow to not get relegated. But at yeah. least those teams can win and elevate themselves. You don't really know if there's anything that Washington State and Oregon State can do. I mean, it's kind of like they're almost uh, one of those teams that, like Auburn back in 1993 when they had probation and couldn't win a national championship, and they just went out and went undefeated and just beat people. You know, that's kind of like what you're almost seeing with, with Oregon State and Washington State for their future right now. And I hope that, that they got some legal maneuvers going on that maybe could help them out and secure their future. We're going to talk more about that next week. But regardless, it's like they're getting their one last chance at the Apple right now. They are. They are. And you look at that Washington State win against Wisconsin, as you referenced specifically, I think that you know they were able to exercise some frustration by winning that game the way they did with what is going on with the conference realignment. And I think also it just adds to the depth of the Pac-12. You think about uh, Cam Ward probably would be seventh or eighth for most people as far as uh, the quarterback depth chart, as far as the quarterbacks we're talking about. But yet they win a game like that. So it just it just shows you kind of the strength right now, at least, of this conference. Absolutely. I mean, and how impressive is it that they got to put, play big, bad Wisconsin and beat them back-to-back seasons? I know this isn't, you know, Barry Alvarez at his height, Wisconsin, but that's still quite the the brand right there. 
for Washington yeah. State to be able to take down in back-to-back years. And, you know, it's interesting, yeah. Joe, you're bringing up Cam Ward, who, of course, was the excellent FCS player in Cardinal Ward before he got, you know, he was able to get his ticket up to Washington State. Where do you think he would rank among SEC quarterbacks right now? I, I mean, you know, put him in there right now. I don't know who looks better as an SEC quarterback than Cam Ward. I guess I'll put Jackson Dart over him, I think. And the way Jaden Daniels is playing, I don't know that I wouldn't even put Jaden Daniels over him. I mean, he may be the second or third best quarterback in the SEC if he was in it. And that's their eighth best quarterback. He very well might be. Um, You know, I've always been on record saying that I think that um, Will Rogers is as good as anybody, quite frankly. I think KJ Jefferson is outstanding. I think the issue both of them run, run into is that they're playing for lackluster teams, comparatively speaking. And then I think the coordinator change has just obviously ruined, you know, Will Rogers' strategy offensively. And so we're getting kind of a semblance of what he could be and should be. And so you add that in, and yeah, I mean, Cam Ward would probably be putting up as good a numbers as anybody if he was in the SEC. Yeah, you know, speaking of that, Joe, uh, I, I I saw the stats for Will Rogers in that game against Arizona. I mean, I think he barely threw for 150 yards. They didn't even let him throw 20 passes. I mean, do you think maybe he should have transferred? He should have. I think so. And, and you know, I, I didn't. I, I thought there'd be an offensive overhaul. I did not expect it this drastic. But you know, he does have one more year of eligibility after this, so definitely expect him to be elsewhere next year. Yeah, I mean, what what I'm seeing with the way Mississippi State has changed their offense, I, I think that he needs to to go elsewhere because he, his talent is being wasted right now. Yes, exactly. Uh, Joe, someone's talent is not being wasted. Uh, it's my wife's favorite. You know, if for something, some reason happens to me, I'm worried about what's going to happen. That's Sam Hartman, Sam Hotman. All the women are love him, and he is just killing it right now. I mean. I think he – I heard this said the other day, and it sounds like a ridiculous statement, but I don't know that I can think of anything to to dispute it. Is he the greatest quarterback that we've seen at Notre Dame since Joe Montana? When you think about, like, the the actual talent that he has and what he could do in terms of going to the next level, level and his efficiency. I mean, I think he's right now he's throwing for 79% in his first three games, and that includes one against, Can- against North Carolina State, which is always a very – defensively sound football team and he just carved them off. Yeah, I think this is what I would say about it. I think that, you know, Brady Quinn would be the one people are thinking about. You think about Ian Book as well. But I think what separates Hartman for me, if you're looking at it objectively, he has that clutch gene that we haven't seen in Notre Dame for a Notre Dame quarterback in a while where you feel like he has the ability, um, you know, if the rest of the team's not playing as well, he's going to potentially have a chance to lead them himself and maybe pull off a last second drive. Absolutely. Because, you know, I think the one thing that's held Notre Dame back in this, you know, in this quest they have to to be a team that wins a college football playoff game or maybe wins a national championship is that since they, you know, through academic reasons and in various, you know, location concerns, it's going to be hard for them to have the, the one and two deep that Georgia or Alabama or Clemson or Florida state has. Right. So in order for them to be a team that can win a national championship, they have to have that game-changing quarterback. And even as great a job as, as BK did when he was there and bringing him to multiple trips to the playoff, they never had that quarterback. Ian Book is not not the guy that can do that. Um, 
Sam Hartman is someone that can take an average receiver and make him look like Randy Moss. Right, right. Like it, it, you suddenly have a Notre Dame offense where it's not really by committee. You have a game changer quarterback, and you could have the ability to take the top off the defense. You're right; it, it is a total game changer. And something else they have too that they haven't had in a while is an excellent running back. I mean, Estime is 245 pounds, six foot three. He's very fast. I mean, you know, he, he's one of the best running backs that, that I've seen in a long time in Notre Dame. And who knows, we could be talking about him in the same vein as, as Jerome Bettis in a few years. So suddenly they have the showstopper big-time running back uh, that's actually, you know, between the tackles, guy who can run against pretty much anybody, and you pair him with the Mr. America excellent quarterback. And this is a scary Notre Dame team. Um I mean, you know, I, I have to watch them again this week. I don't know who they're playing, but right now I think they beat Ohio State at home. They've got a chance. I mean, they, they really, um, you know, we're thinking about Texas having a chance this year. I mean, Notre Dame's got as good of a chance as anybody. Like, this is the golden opportunity, as gold as their helmets uh, this year for them to capitalize. Absolutely. Now, that would be an exciting one, too, if you get a Notre Dame and Texas college football playoff matchup. I think that would get a lot of excitement. Oh, yeah, that, that would be a ratings uh, bonanza. That's right, Joe. Um, speaking of ratings bonanza, what Colorado did against Nebraska, Shadur Sanders and Travis Hunter are ratings bonanzas. Shadur's played two games for the Buffs. He's already almost got a thousand passing yards. And, you know, Colorado is a very flawed team. I mean, see, Nebraska is a very flawed team right now. We saw what they did on offense and the way they gave that game away against Minnesota. They still have a pretty good defense. And for the first half, Nebraska had to play solid defense, or Colorado had to play solid defense because their offense was struggling a little bit. But I think a mark of a good team and a well-coached team are your second-half adjustments. And in the second half, they came out and scored four touchdowns against Nebraska, and suddenly they were making that Nebraska defense look the way that TCU did. And, I mean, I saw across the board everyone's like, well, you know, Colorado got that first big win, but they're not going to be able to do it against Nebraska. I got Nebraska to win this. Everybody's buying into the Deion hype for no reason. And yet again, he went out and shut him up. Yeah, and here's what I would say about that. It's talking about what you're saying with the second half, half adjustments. You're seeing second half adjust, adjustments that are the mark of a coach that you would think had been there for two or three years that – more of these players on this roster had been together for a while where they had, you know, some precedent to kind of pull from as far as, okay, we can kind of rally at halftime. We can make these adjustments. We've done this before. And instead, I mean, you have this team that's their second game together with a lot of these guys, and they're they're looking like, you know, just the team that's been there, done that. And I talked about it the first week after the execution of the offense looking the same way. Um, even though you got a lot of players that have never played together, you know, until this season. And so to me, it just it just speaks volumes about the impact of uh, Sanders, both Sanders in uh, in Colorado. And then also how cool was it to kind of have this uh, Nebraska Colorado rivalry back on uh, center stage? Absolutely. Joe. That was one of my favorite games to watch when I was a kid. In my mind, that was always a Thanksgiving game, right? I, I kind of like associated that with the Egg Bowl and the Texas-Texas A&M rivalry, and it was always played in the snow. It was always good, hard-nosed football, running the ball. 
and they had some really great games. And those, like in the nineties, Colorado and Nebraska were both, you know, two of the top ten teams in America year in year out. So that was exciting to get to see them both in a big game again. Yeah, I mean that, that's a rivalry that I would love to see played every year. Yeah, I hope that the conference realignment's not going to destroy that one. I mean, because it has been for a long time, but maybe there's going to be a way they can preserve that because it's just a it's a good rivalry. It is. Uh, Joe, speaking of good, uh, the results were good. Maybe not the way they got there. I thought that Ole Miss and Auburn both had good, you know, impressive road wins for different reasons. Uh, I was very happy with Ole Miss's defense, um, which surprised me. I knew that Pete Golding was going to improve them, but is you know the offense made some good plays down at the very end for for Ole Miss. But I really thought that the game changer was how good Pete Golding's uh, pass rush did against Tulane. Yeah, I mean that that was huge. That they've got a lot of guys playing with a lot of confidence. Um, you know, you have a lot of guys who were on the team last year. You've added, of course, some impactful transfers, but you've had a lot of guys on the team last year. But because they have Golding, I feel like he's injected a uh, new life and confidence with them. Um, and then, you know, speaking of confidence, uh, Jackson Dart, I think, has a lot of it. Um, I think that he talked about after the game that this team last year would not have won a game like this. He feel like, feels like, you know, they're more seasoned now. He's been with uh, Charlie Weiss and Lane Kibben now for two years, and so they kind of are on the same page. And the passing attack, you know, with Trey Harris and, and Wade, it, it looks really formidable. I think the concern is, we were talking about before the show, the running game has regressed. You know, in the last few years, the running game is really good. Now you're kind of going back to that Hugh Freeze problem where you had great passing games, but you had questionable running attacks. Well, Joe, what I was impressed with, you're talking about Jackson Dart, is he made the play of the game when he evaded uh, a pass rush right up the middle and put really good touch on that pass to, to Michael Trigg on third down to get a touchdown and really kind of put the game away. I mean, that was that was huge. Um, and something else I like, too, is it seems like Kiffin's learning a little bit because who knew he had, like, you know – he knew that Adam Vinatieri was a kicker who could drill a 56-yarder like it was 70 out, and he gave him the chance to do it when it mattered, and the kid, uh, Kay Davis, succeeded. I mean, that was such an amazing moment right there. I was like, oh, my God, he's actually kicking this thing. And then it was like, this would have been good from 70 yards. Like, that was amazing. Yeah, that was that was crazy. Like, that was one of the more, like, the bolder uh, fourth down calls, like, even though he didn't go for it. Like, that was still bold because if you miss that, and you know, the odds are high that you could, you know, you're going to give Tulane a short bill. That's right. Speaking of bold, we're going to come back and talk about the bold effort by Auburn's defense on the other side. Uh, listen to all of our episodes on Spotify and, of course, subscribe to our Facebook or to our YouTube channel to see us. And as always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe.